0: This morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. This is the word of God. Even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gift to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, before we uh, consider this section... In Luke's gospel about prayer, uh, let's bow together and pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity uh, to know you, to live in this world that you have created. Uh, We thank you for your goodness, for your love, and your care for us. And Father, this morning I pray that you will teach us how to pray, that you will show us the way that we are to approach you, Uh, that we will delight in the freedom we have to call you our father and to make our requests and petitions known to you and father i pray that you will give us your spirit that you will fill us with your holy spirit lead us and guide us work in our minds and work in our hearts lord i pray that you will make us into a people who know what is right who know what is true and to have the moral integrity and spiritual strength to do what is right in your sight. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will help us to uh, appreciate you more, uh, to truly live our lives for you. And Lord, I would ask that your spirit will minister to every heart this morning, whether uh, people have come in this morning uh, filled with excitement and joy and happiness and exuberance, Or if they have come in uh, this morning with heartache, uh, heaviness of spirit, Lord, you know where every one of us is. You know our emotional disposition. You know our uh, spiritual state. You even know the state of our physical health, all of these things that affect us. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you and we ask that you will take your truth and that you will do the work that only you can do of working in our hearts to make us like Jesus Christ. Do this for the glory of your name's sake, for we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this section begins relatively in a familiar way, although if you have the Lord's Prayer memorized, which probably many of you do... The text that you have it memorized from is in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 6. And so the teaching of Jesus here, even though it contains many of the same elements... It's not verbatim what you get in the more extended discourse in Matthew 6, uh, what we universally quote out of the King James Version, regardless of what translation you use normally. You know, when you think of the Lord's Prayer, you almost certainly think, uh, King James Version English, and you're drawing out of Matthew chapter 6. For Luke, the context is a little bit different, and one of the things that we should remember about Jesus as a traveling preacher, a teacher, is that Jesus often would have shared roughly the same messages in different locations. And so, Lord willing, as, as Dave mentioned, uh, I'm flying out uh, on Friday uh, to go down to Cuba, and then next week I'm going to be teaching a number of Cuban pastors and about the New Testament. And many of the things that I'm going to be teaching them in terms of New Testament theology are things that I've taught before uh, in many different places. And so if you even, I'm not all that important, but if you were to follow me around for a year, you know, in the different places where I'm teaching and speaking, you would hear me say many, many of the same things again and again and again. And not in some sort of memorized, verbatim way, but just adapting material to the context at hand. So here we have Jesus, contextually, not delivering the Sermon on the Mount, but Luke says, Jesus is praying. And we've noticed this in Luke before that Luke places a special emphasis, far more than Matthew and Mark, the other synoptic gospel authors, on the prayer life of Jesus. Very rarely are we told what Jesus prays, but Luke very frequently tells us that Jesus is praying, or that Jesus withdraws to pray. And we've also seen through the gospel up until now that Jesus prays before pivotal moments of redemptive history. In other words, before Jesus reveals his glory more fully, or before he chooses the disciples, or before he does something that really shows people who he is, we find him bathing his life and ministry in prayer before those events. So if you read through the Gospel of Luke, and you just notice the times Luke says Jesus was praying, and then you see what follows subsequently, very often it's a pivotal moment in the Gospel where we're told Jesus is in prayer with the Father. So we're not surprised by Luke 11 to find that Jesus is praying, but his disciples are starting to realize that what they see in Jesus is something that they need to. They begin to see that Jesus has this vibrant, rich prayer life, unlike anything they've ever seen before. And this is the son of God incarnate communicating with his heavenly father. And so there have never been prayers like the prayers offered by the perfect, faultless, sinless son of God. And so the disciples hear Jesus pray. They observe how frequently he's in prayer. And so they come to him quite naturally and they recognize in God's grace, you have something that we don't have, but you have something that we need. Lord, teach us, how to pray. J. C. Ryle, uh, excellent evangelical Anglican pastor, uh, prolific author and theologian from the eighteen hundreds, uh, says about this verse. He says, Happy are those who cry, Lord, teach us to pray. Happy are those who cry, Lord, teach us to pray. And so before Jesus begins to instruct his disciples about prayer, one of the questions, honestly, that goes before this is, have you ever asked Jesus to teach you how to pray? And I think sometimes we just assume that there is no right or wrong way to pray. We just sort of come into the presence of God and we just start talking. We just sort of release whatever is in our heart. But interestingly enough, and I have to be careful you know, not to, to bring over too much of Matthew into Luke's account, But in Matthew's account, in Matthew 6, Jesus begins not by teaching the people how to pray. He begins by teaching them how not to pray. So he begins his discourse on prayer by saying, And when you pray, do not be like the Pharisees. When you pray, do not be like the pagans. When you pray, do not be like those who think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like those who stand praying at the street corners to be seen by men. And so there are wrong ways of approaching prayer. And so we need to ask, Lord, teach me to pray. This is part of a recognition that naturally, because of the sinful nature of our hearts, we don't know how to do anything right when it comes to our relationship with God. And so we need to pray, Lord, I don't even know what I'm doing here. Teach me how to pray. Teach me to see prayer the way you have designed it. I wonder if honestly if many of us many of us would say that we struggle with prayer. That prayer is a difficult thing. But I wonder if some of that can be chalked up to the fact that we're trying to do it all on our own rather than humbling ourselves to admit before God, I can't pray to begin with unless you teach me and show me how and give me the strength to do so. We are not able to do anything we are called to do apart from the strength and wisdom and grace that God gives us in the first place so Jesus said when you pray say father hallowed be your name and so he locates our prayer firstly in our relationship with God as our father so we need to remind ourselves who we are talking to uh, we are talking to our Father, of course, Matthew will, he says, in heaven, right? So we are locating God. He is our Father, but he is not like any earthly father. He rules over all things. He is transcendent. He is high and exalted. He lives in glory. He lives in heaven itself. And yet he is imminent. He is close to me. He is intimate with me. He cares about me. He protects me. In the first century, though, the image of a father was not the image of someone who sort of you know played toys with his kids. Uh, the image of a father was an image of authority and rule in the home. And so even here yes there is protection, there is care, there is love, there is intimacy, but there's a strong accent culturally in the day of Jesus on authority. Our father is not our peer. He is not our buddy. Uh, he is not our equal. We do not come to the king of kings and sort of argue for some sort of democracy that God and I will figure out how to run the universe, right? Uh, I come into the presence of God reminding myself that I am a human being here on earth and it is wonderful that he is my father, but he is not like me. He is transcendent and awesome in every way. And the first request, then, is hallowed be your name, that the name of God may be holy. Now, if you know anything about God's revelation in Scripture, you know that before you get to the time of Jesus, if there is one thing that God has revealed himself to be, it is that he is holy. And so what we can't do is we can't imagine that in praying to God, we are giving him more holiness than he already has. Or we can't possibly imagine that we're supposed to pray that God will increase in holiness because he can't. He is maximally holy. He is morally perfect, but he is also set apart. He is in a category all by himself. There is none like him. And so we come into the presence of God and we're saying, hallowed be your name. We can't be asking for a change in his character. That is, he can't actually change in his holiness. He is already perfectly holy. So when we're asking that his name be hallowed, we are really asking for a change in us. We are asking for a change in this world. We are asking for insight to be able to recognize who God intrinsically is. We don't increase his holiness. He can't improve his holiness, but we can grow in our appreciation of his holiness. We can come to understand more and more what it means for God to be a holy God. And we should grieve, as the prophets in Israel grieved, that God's holiness is spurned by the world. And so when we pray, Lord, may your name be holy, we are praying, Lord, may your name be treated as holy as it really is. Help me to understand what it means for you to be holy. Do not let your name be trampled in unholiness here in this world anymore. Your kingdom come. We want God's reign to be made manifest. We want to see the fruit of God's reign here in this world. Of course, in Matthew also You know, we'll pray uh, that the Lord's will will be done uh, on earth as it is in heaven. Or rather, in Matthew's uh, recording, uh, Jesus also teaches that the Lord's will will be done on earth as it is to heaven. Now, these things very clearly show you that when you begin to pray to God, it's not necessarily that this is supposed to be repeated verbatim, but what it is saying is that this is how you Approach God structurally. It's not a rubric or a template you know, that you're just supposed to go on autopilot with, but it is showing you that when you pray to God, there are certain priorities that you are to align your prayer priorities with, and notice that none of them really start with you. Now, this is not about what I want, this is not about what I need even, this is about God, And so when Jesus prays and when he teaches his disciples how to pray, he begins by orienting all of their prayers around God, our relationship with God, the holiness of God, the kingdom of God, the will of God. In other words, prayer is profoundly a spiritual exercise in relating to God and in asking to see God reveal himself to the world. But it's all about God. It's not about my health. It's not about my bank account. It's not about my success. It's about God. And so even in prayer, one of the things that Jesus is teaching us, I think sort of implicitly or tacitly here, is that we really are prone to pray selfishly. One of the things that James says Amongst other things, one thing he says about prayer is, you do not have because you do not ask, right? Which is pretty indicative of the importance of prayer. Sometimes we don't have things, we just haven't asked God for them. Then he goes on, but when you ask, you do not receive. Why? For you ask with wicked, you ask with selfish motives. In other words, you want to use God to give you things to make your life more comfortable. And James even says, some of you, you're you're like people committing adultery. You're asking God to bless you with things so that you can just spend them on the world. That you'll take all the blessings of God for your own selfish ambition and pleasure. He says, no wonder God doesn't answer your prayer. Here, Jesus teaches us, prayer is to revolve around God, his name, his kingdom, and his will. So then when we come to praying, Give us each day our daily bread. We have already subsumed our personal requests under the all-encompassing sovereignty, purpose, and plan of God. So that when I pray, Lord, give me what I need for today, I have already submitted myself, as Jesus does in Gethsemane, nevertheless not my will, but your will be done. In other words, If I care supremely about God's name and God's holiness and God's kingdom and God's will, then even as many of our brothers and sisters throughout history and many of our brothers and sisters, we must never forget this, that this very day there are brothers and sisters in in Jesus Christ in this world who will die for their testimony for Jesus. That will happen today. And in shifting time zones, it has already happened today, July 10th, 2016. There have been people who have lost their lives for their testimony and faithfulness to Jesus Christ. That has happened. And it continues to happen. Hour by hour throughout this day. You pray and you say, Lord, even if it's martyrdom, your name, your will, your kingdom. And after that you say, Lord, give me what I need. I need bread. I need food. If it's your will that my life be sustained throughout today. Give me what I need. But I've already submitted what I think I need to what you know I need. And I've already submitted my will to yours. Your kingdom, your will, not mine. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Now, this is something you need to be very careful about. Jesus is not teaching us that our sins are forgiven by God because, they're, because that forgiveness is merited on the basis of us being so morally exemplary that we've forgiven other people. In other words, this is not works righteousness smuggled in. But it is something, by analogy, Jesus is saying, when we pray, we should be able to say to God, the same way that I forgive other people who sin against me, that's how I want you to treat me. Not, I haven't earned forgiveness, but notice that I forgive sins. If I can forgive people who sin against me, Lord, then please, you in your mercy and grace, forgive me too. This is very bold. Again, it is not merit, it is not works righteousness, but it is saying that if we have received the grace and the forgiveness of God, we will be so radically transformed that we will be a forgiving people. We will forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. And so that in our lives, our practice should be such that if God treated us in terms of forgiveness the way we treat other people, we should be fine. But if we withhold forgiveness... If we nurture grudges, if we refuse to truly forgive people from the heart, then what Jesus is saying is, why would you expect God to do for you what you refuse to do for other people? In other words, it becomes hypocritical to pray, Lord, forgive me, and then to turn around and refuse to forgive the person who has sinned against me. And lead us not into temptation. Keep us from sin. Here's one of those reminders. This is in some ways very discouraging, but also very liberating. Your strength is too small. So, Lord, don't let me go there. Because there are places where I'm just not, I'm just not able, I'm not up for it. I'm not good enough. Lord, you know my profound weaknesses. Hedge me in. Keep me safe. Lead me not into temptation. You know where it's safe for me to be and where it's not safe for me. Lord, keep me in that safe zone, By your grace, let me not presume on my own strength. Be careful if you think you stand lest you fall. Help me not to presume on my own strength. Help me not to be foolish. Lord, you know what's best. Guide and direct my steps. Keep me safe. Keep me close to you. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And if you don't actually feel it, then you won't really have any heart when you pray this. But if you feel that, Lord, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Bind my heart to you with a chain, with a fetter. Keep me close to you, lead me not into temptation. This is our priority structure. God, his name, his will, his kingdom, before we even begin to pray with things like forgiveness for sins. See, we are completely, completely placing our lives under him in every way. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now, uh, there are some different ways of translating uh, verse 8, where here in the new NIV translation, we have shameless audacity. It probably actually is the best way of of bringing about the force of it. Um, In the original language, Uh, The word is used almost universally in a negative way for someone who's rude, for a sort of shameless rudeness, for being a pest, for bothering someone, uh, for rudely demanding something. And this is what Jesus says here. There are limitations on friendship. I will tell you this right now. If you ever show up at my house, at any time past 9 p.m. <laughs> there is no way I'm answering the door. It, it is never going to happen. And and you can, except in one case, that is if you continue to knock on the door and ring the doorbell, eventually I'll get worn down and I will just decide it is better to go open the door Give you whatever you want, and I can honestly say it because we don't have any possessions. So you can come to our house and ask for anything, you know, I'll give it to you eventually. But it's not worth your time. Uh, you know, you can knock on the door. You, know, you can demand, "I need this. I need that." And you know, eventually, I'll come to conclusion that I am better just to give you what you want to get you out of there so I can hopefully still fall back asleep before it hits 9.30. You know, whatever it takes, we'll do that. And so you might not do it because of friendship, but you might get worn down. Now, the reality is, too, most people would do this out of friendship, right? So if someone comes and they need something, most of us are going to say, okay, you know, if you need something, here it is. And you're not going to have this sort of begrudging response. What Jesus is saying here is obviously not, listen, your Father in heaven is like a really... Grumpy friend who's going to find you really bothersome and inconvenient, doesn't care a bit about you, but just to shut you up is going to give you a blessing every now and then. Right? So what Jesus is really saying is by analogy, if you can wear out a human friend who doesn't want to be bothered with you to so eventually you get what you're asking for, how much more can you have confidence when you make requests of God? That God will bless you. That God will be quick to hear your prayers. I mean, the parable only functions, really, but the illustration only functions because, as human beings, we have bad times and limited resources. But there is no equivalent to three in the morning with God. Like God's never tucked into bed needing his needing to be refreshed for the next day. You know, God's awake. God isn't running down in terms of resources. God's patience isn't getting strained. And so if there are bad times to approach friends, but nevertheless the friend might still give in to you, there is no bad times to approach God. So what Jesus is saying is sort of, listen, even in this worst case scenario, you know that if you're persistent, if you're bold, you can get what you want. It'll be grudgingly given to you, but you can still get it. But none of that applies to God. He's our Father. He's holy. He's merciful and compassionate and loving and gracious and desires to bless His children. And so you pray and you don't give up. And you go boldly, not rudely. Being rude might wear down a human being. But you don't need to be rude with God. You come respectfully. You come to honor him. You come aware of the great privilege it is to be able to call God our Father in the first place. I mean, who are you? Who am I? To have access to the ear of the one who sits on the throne of heaven. I don't know if you know this. I'm an extraordinarily important person. And I have friends in powerful places all over the world you know so so i have i have a red phone in my bedroom just one line direct to buckingham palace queen's personal phone you know and i've got another one you know it's black and white spotted you know it goes right to the president i don't we don't chat that much anymore. (laughs) Some issues with some of the things that he's been doing. you know. And so, you know, he doesn't take me anyway. He calls me too much trying to get my advice for things. I've had to uh, sort of almost block him. Goes to voicemail, you know. And so the truth of the matter is, if I was important enough to have phone access to all of the world leaders, you might not be impressed with me, but you would be impressed by that. I mean, to be able to just call up, I'm going to call up, Brock, this afternoon, I'm gonna I'm gonna call up you know our our prime minister. I need some tips on how to style my hair, you know, or whatever, <laughs> right? Like, like whatever. I can't. I don't have political. I don't remember the campaign. I seem to remember there was something about he had great hair, and who can deny it, right? So so you you call those people up, and you you have direct access. 24 hours a day to the one who sits on the throne of the universe. The one who is sovereign over all things. The one who is holy. Who has an eternal everlasting kingdom. The one who is working out all things for the purpose of the power of his glorious grace. The one who is forming a new heavens and new earth. The one who has sent his son and his son has come willingly to die in your place, to pay the penalty for your sins. so You can be adopted into his royal family. That is your father. And you can pray to him anytime. And there's never a time when he's cloistered off in, in some sort of committee meeting and you have to wait. There's never a time when he's tucked in, just, just exhausted, needs some time by himself. No, whenever, whenever you need to talk to your father, you remember who he is so that you don't come flippantly and irreverently, but you do come. And you come boldly. Because he has seen fit to form a relationship with you. And that's the thing you must always remember. We we are not religious in the sense of us figuring out a way to cultivate a right relationship with God. We do not build a ladder from my life to God's life, from earth to heaven. We only have a relationship with God because he has come down to us. Uh, because he has acted to reach down to us. Uh, there is a ladder from you know, connecting heaven and earth, but it comes down from above. It's never built up from here. And so the very fact that we call him our father is proof positive. He wants this. We could not have this if it wasn't for his initiative in the first place and the sovereign work of his grace in our hearts and lives in this world. And so we say, yeah, man, rudeness will wear down a begrudging friend. But if that's the case, how much more should we be emboldened in prayer to God. So because of that, I say, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. Ask, seek, and knock are grammatically in the present tense, which means that these are ongoing activities. So you can't sort of wake up, say, you know, I'm going to take Saturday morning, I'm going to make a really long list of stuff, I'm going to go through it once, and then I can say, I asked, you know, I knocked, and then I can retire from prayer. You know, these are ongoing activities. You keep knocking, you keep seeking, you keep asking, present tense. You didn't cover it all yesterday. You need to keep pouring out your heart before God in fresh and ongoing ways. Now, These are verses that have often been taken sort of out of context to say, well, whatever you ask for, whatever you seek, whatever, if you knock, whatever you want, you will receive. It seems that Jesus is indicating that. So is this sort of the, the surefire way of triumphing over cancer? Is this the surefire way of, you know, ending up with the new car in the driveway? You know, is this the, the surefire way uh, of ending up with you know, fancy clothes and prestige and success and all of those sorts of things? And you could almost think that it is if you threw out everything else that the Bible says about everything, right? Uh, or even if you just failed to pay attention to the immediate context, which is you have already begun learning that when you pray, prayer is not fundamentally about what you want, and everything you ask for is already submitted under God's name, God's will, and God's kingdom. And so if you think that the number one priority in God's kingdom is for you to have a Lamborghini, you need to reread the Bible. Right? You've already said, Lord, I am submitting my whole life underneath the framework of your spiritual priorities for me. So you actually know what I need one of the great blessings of God is sometimes he doesn't give us what we ask for. Because just like, as any parent knows, who has children of any age, children often, often think that what they absolutely need is the last thing they should have. Uh, parents know that there are many times when to actually do good to that child, you have to say no to their request. And there are times, too, where, you know, the child might ask for a cookie, and what you really know they need to do is to eat the broccoli. And so not only for the child, did they not get the cookie, which is obviously the only good they can imagine, you know, but you failed to give them the cookie, and then you gave them broccoli, what kind of horrible moral monster are you? You know, like no wonder they throw a tantrum. I mean, like the cookie is obviously good, the broccoli is obviously awful. They asked for the cookie, you gave them broccoli. You're a terrible parent. And some of your children might actually tell you that, you know, uh, depending on uh, the context. The reality is we are very, very much like spiritual toddlers far too often. And we are sure that what we really need is this, more comfort, more temporal, material prosperity, security, etc. But what God knows is that what we really need is a little less of that, because our heart's already getting too caught up with material creature comforts in this world. God already knows that we need a little bit less success because our pride and ego is so swollen already that far from more success, what we really need is our pretensions to be pricked and our bubbles to be popped a little bit, come back down to earth. And so when we pray, when we ask, when we seek, when we knock, it's all contextualized to the framework of, God, you're the one who matters. You know what I need. And I've already submitted that your will be done on heaven as it is on earth. Even if it's not exactly what I would like right now, or even what I think is wise right now, you are the father. I am the child. You will dispose of things as is best. So what is it that the father will give us? Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then... This is, this is one of these just phrases in the bible so you get so much so much richness just sort of smuggled in for free you know if you fathers if you know how to give gifts even though you're wicked you know it just sort of just adds that you know like don't forget before you go running off and yeah you know i do know how to give good gifts i'm a pretty good guy says listen you might be able to get give good gifts but don't forget you're evil like you need a savior You need help. You need grace. And if you're evil, then why would you think that out of an evil heart and an evil mind, you know precisely what's best for you? Like, wouldn't you think that if you're someone who's sinful, if you're someone who's evil, that perhaps the way you assess your needs, the things that you ask for, maybe that's not really what's best because you're fundamentally messed up. You just don't see things God's way. In fact, that's the whole problem with you, is that your priorities are selfish and that you really have positioned yourself as the center of the universe. That's what sin is. Sin is putting yourself in the place of God. Sin is denying the right of God and usurping his place and arrogating to yourself all the privileges that really only properly belong to him. And so... This is a great check on my asking in the first place, Lord, I realize I'm evil, and so I submit all of my requests to you in your grace, because I frankly don't actually know what I need. If you then, though you are evil, will know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Very interesting this. Luke records that Jesus says specifically, what's the good gift? The good gift is the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that such a good gift? And, and this is this may be a diagnostic. I mean, are you more excited that if you ask and seek and knock, God will give you the Holy Spirit? Are you more excited by that than if the text really did mean? If you just went home and prayed, then tomorrow morning you'd wake up and there'd be a sports car in the driveway. Like, do you actually care more that what Jesus says is, you will get the Holy Spirit? And you go, oh man, all that, that health and wealth, that sounded pretty good. And then get to the end and it's the Holy Spirit, That's kind of an anticlimax. And you would never be so crass as to say that, because you know it's not the right thing to say. But do you feel it? Do you feel that tension, that pull? What if it really did mean all the health and wealth you wanted? Would you prefer that that's what it meant? Or would you actually truly, before God in your heart of hearts, prefer that it means the Holy Spirit? Well, regardless of what you want, it is the Spirit that is the good gift. And why is it such a good gift? Well, for one, because it's, it's the Spirit of God himself, Right? And this is climactically, in terms of salvation history, this happens on the day of Pentecost. After the ascension of Jesus Christ, after his death and resurrection, when the Holy Spirit is poured out in fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises that God's Spirit would one day be poured out on all of his covenant community. And it's a great fulfillment of prophecy. But even more than that, there is also, it's very personal. That we can walk with the Spirit. We can be in step with the Spirit the spirit can lead us the spirit can open our minds to understand scripture to understand god's word and if you understand god's word then you know uh, that many many times uh, scripture is compared to silver and gold and and this the truth of this book it's always ranked as more valuable than all of the wealth the world provides like do you believe that and so, you look at people who wear themselves out to, to get rich, to, to have a nicer car or a bigger house or, you know, a more expensive vacation or whatever. They wear themselves out for more money. And this is better than money. And so actually, if you want real wealth and real treasure, then you need the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the only one who can teach you the meaning of this book. And so it is the greatest gift of all possible gifts when it comes to wealth, because it's real riches. Our Father gives us what we need to have genuine riches in His Word. The Holy Spirit is necessary for us to have victory over sin. The Holy Spirit is necessary for us to walk in a way which is pleasing and honoring to God. The Holy Spirit is necessary for the production of things that really are more valuable than money, like love and joy and peace patience kindness. You, you can probably, probably know the verse that I'm working through. right? You, you can finish it on your own. How many people have, have strong bodies and incredible wealth and they're absolutely miserable in despair, no purpose, no point, no love, no peace? The Holy Spirit is the one that we need. He is the one who allows us to actually live life the way we were designed to live in fellowship with God through Jesus. And so there is no greater gift than the Holy Spirit. There isn't. Because he has poured out in response to what Jesus Christ has done for us in providing atonement for our sins on the cross, in triumphing over death through his resurrection. That's why the Spirit is poured out after Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And that's who we live by. We live by the Spirit. In this world is absolutely essential for us to know our Father. In many ways, then, prayer truly does show the desires of our heart. What you pray about, what you care about, what you pour out before God really shows what's in your heart. And if your prayers revolve around sort of the things of this world, that's because your desires and your priorities and your concerns are bound up with the things of this world. That's why you pray about them. If it's your wealth and health and, and all the rest, that's, that's because that's what you really value the most. But if you pray about God and his name and kingdom and will and all of those things, it's because that's your priority that the world will be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's your priority, that the church will grow in holiness. That's your priority, that that the Lord's Spirit will, will blow through you know, this city and that there will be a great awakening where people actually come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It is that what you pray for? If you do that's what you care about. That's your desire. That's your priority. So what you pray to your Father really shows what you actually care about. And you can work out your own implication if you're just not someone who prays at all or very, very rarely. See, we come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach me to pray because we don't know how. Okay? So that's the first, as so I say, I don't know how to pray. Good. That's the first step. Okay? But the Lord can teach you by his Spirit. And if we learn to pray, learning from Jesus' words, if we learn to pray according to his priority structure, you know what will happen? What will happen is that over time, the priorities of your heart will be reoriented. Over time, you will actually learn how to pray. Not by following a template, but because the priorities of Jesus actually will become your priorities. And so when the disciples say, teach us how to pray, Jesus doesn't just give them words. He gives them a whole systematic approach which will revolutionize their hearts if they actually follow up with it. So you go home and you learn to pray with the word of God open in front of you, seeing how Jesus taught you. And you pray that way, and you pray that way, and you pray that way until all of a sudden it becomes second nature. Why? Because it's second nature. It's a new nature created in you by God to respond to him the way he has taught you to do. Well, may God in his grace make us a church that prays, whether it's July 31st or January thirty first or whatever the day is, you know, we can pray to God. And that's what we need to be. We need to we do need to be a praying people, but praying in a God honoring way, and not just asking God to do what we want, to rubber stamp our agenda to bring about what we think is best. It's I think it's I think this could be really exciting. I think this this could change families, this could change hearts. This could change your life. This could change the church. Praying properly and biblically, literally, by God's grace, could change the world. And so let's learn to pray as Jesus taught us. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us uh, in a closing song.